and every single time it worked, I was surprised. Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm James Wiseman, and with me is Ryan Young. So this is a special makeup episode because Ryan and I made an episode. Ryan was really happy about it. But Ryan had such a hot take in this episode that I was worried that we needed to mull it over a little bit, let it kind of linger and decide if we really want to put it out there. So it's super late at night, so we can get this in. And I am back home in Austin, Texas. I haven't been here in a while. This is where I learned to freestyle, so it's kind of wild to be here. I'm probably going to dig through my closet after this call to see what kind of old plastic I have sitting around for my first days as a freestyler. But this is all very appropriate because what we're going to talk about today is learning new moves. So first, Ryan, when is the last time you think you learned a new move? I think I've learned the one, at least one move every year. <laughs> but last year was the last time I learned a new move. Wow. I don't even know what it was. <laughs> I've actually, I've been, I've been in the spin factory lately trying to learn some new moves. So I think it's a good topic for us. Um, so I think the thing that's the most helpful, most interesting is to talk about what we think the right approach is to learning new moves and kind of relatedly, what's the right approach to master a new move. Cause I kind of think you learn moves in stages and you learn moves in different ways, depending on what kind of move it is. So first, let me think about how sometimes you learn moves in different I have different routes to learn a move. So, for instance, we've talked about, at least personally, free moves. So what's a free move, Ryan? It's when you try it and you can get it on the first attempt and you just have it at that proficiency forever. Uh, see, that's interesting because for me, a free move means you can do it immediately, but it doesn't always mean that it lasts forever because I think I've had a lot of oh, moves that that's, right? that's, I've had a lot of moves start out free and I eventually realized that they're not free. Like, it's almost like... I see. Like, I was thinking about this recently because I'm having this with the behind-the-head brush. It was a free move for a good couple of years. And it was quintessential free move because it was working every time, but I was completely confused. I had no idea why it was working. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was doing. And every single time it worked, I was surprised. And then you start to think about it and you start to realize <laughs> what you're doing and the move completely falls apart. And then you have to start from the ground up, at least in my experience. But certainly some free moves are free forever. But I find when a move is free, it's usually temporary. And then there's a long process to get it back, which it's kind of cool because you get to kind of see what it is and see how cool it is. But it's also very sad when you can do something and then suddenly you can't do it anymore. My free moves have a quirk where I can't make it better than the original. So over time, my moves get better. But my free moves start at like 80% and I can't get them to 100. Okay, that's interesting <laughs> too because I was going to say we'll be a little rambling because it's late and we didn't really plan very well. But I think that the moves that take me the longest to learn are the moves that end up being the best and get to 100%. And mm -hmm. So that kind of fits in with what you're saying about a free move. So like a free move, especially one that's free forever, it would make sense to me that you kind of can't get it beyond 80% because 
probably if it's free you don't really understand why it's working <laughs> it just kind of does and you <laughs> can't really tinker with it or else it's kind of break but like for instance i think the one of the moves that took me the longest to learn was a scarecrow and now it feels like i can scarecrow anything anywhere although my catch percentage on scarecrow and competition is pretty low but i think that's because <laughs> it's probably a bail but anyways I got, that's definitely a case where the fact that it took me so long got it to a point where now it feels like I can do anything. But maybe we should start really at the beginning, which is how do you pick what movie you even want to learn? Okay. Do you, does this relate back to our learn how to co-op and or learn how to mob off the four moves? I mean, kind of. I think, I think there's different ways to approach it. I mean, I've talked a lot before about how you should just learn whatever you want to learn because, as you like to say, enthusiasm is the best predictor of success. So if you're want to learn something that's probably something you're enthusiastic about and it's better it's probably better for you to be enthusiastic and learn the things you want to learn over time than to learn the right things and maybe not be as enthusiastic about it i think there's multiple motivations for learning moves so like you can learn the cool moves and you can learn the moves that you should know and you don't have to just do all of one at a time. Yeah, you can have multiple Seems. tracks. So you can say, I'm yeah. learning my fundamentals over here, but I'm super into, you know, the upside down counter scarecrow brush. So I'm just going to learn that over here, even though the utility <laughs> on that might be super low. That definitely makes sense to me. Um, but I also think there's kind of another way to think about this, which is just, do you see something, you want to learn it? Don't in my opinion, don't worry about whose move it is or where you got it from. Just learn it if you like it. <laughs> or I think if you're at like a later stage and you feel like you are losing your motivation or don't know what to work on or aren't excited, just pull up an old video of Donnie Rhodes or something. And I guarantee you if you watch three minutes of freestyle from a different area or different time period, you'll find a lot of stuff that you've never seen before. And that usually gets me fired up to learn new things for sure. Okay. When you think of learning new moves, are you envisioning a newer player learning or someone more advanced? I think it's all all skill levels. I've been thinking right now whether there's a different learning process at the beginning versus the end, and I don't think there is. I think I learn the same way now as I've always learned. And I actually think, and I'm probably primed here because I'm sitting in my old music room, but I think I learned a lot about learning when I was a musician and I took all those lessons and applied them to freestyle. So maybe I had a more coherent learning strategy right from the beginning, which maybe if you haven't learned something else before freestyle, you haven't really experienced that before. But I do think for me, I've always approached learning things the same way, whether it was a really simple move at the beginning or something more complicated now. I think I agree with that. I think I just got better at learning as I got better at freestyle. So if I went back and had to relearn everything, I would just use my current technique. I also think, you know, we talked before, I can't remember if it was on the now lost podcast that will never be released, but how all the ways we've been lucky, but some of the ways we've been lucky are less intuitive. Like it's really lucky to be interested in learning. And I think <laughs> that's something that I've been really lucky with because I find it more entertaining if I'm playing freestyle by myself to learn new things than to just jam, which I don't know if everyone feels that way. And that's obviously been a big advantage for getting better at freestyle, which again, this doesn't have to be your goal, but I get super bored if I just try to play by myself for fun. 
And I'm always amazed by people who can do it really well, like Fabio and Dave Murphy, who can just play by themselves for hours. I think that's incredible. I get super bored and I start getting into learning mode and I find learning mode a lot more satisfying. And I think I've been just really lucky in having that kind of motivation. So maybe then let's talk about like, what are the steps to learning something? So I have some ideas, but kind of if I told you, you have to learn, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good example. I was going to say Olivia, but I think there's other reasons you would never learn to do an Olivia. But (laughs) let's say you needed to learn how to do the leg roll. How would you approach learning it? Okay. So for me, I would look for the best example of it first and then see what it is. And then I would break up my practice into sections. So like the first section is just experimentation. It's like all growth mindset. It doesn't really matter what happens. Mm-hmm. I'm just breaking the ice and I just mimic it and do whatever. And that's the first section. Then there's like a second feedback section where you can have someone give you the feedback or you can watch yourself on video. But like the feedback is important. That's kind of like the second section. That's like what I think most people think of practice is like mostly in that Mm-hmm. And then there's a third section after that, which is like mastery, which are just like refining. And that probably takes the longest. And I don't know how you like, I've always wondered if you can speed up the third section, like maybe mastery just takes however long it takes. I know in music, we had this saying that was something like practice slow, learn fast. And that was kind of the only way to speed things up. So I totally agree with your process. That's how I would do it. I think one of the things that's tricky about freestyle is sometimes you don't have a lot of examples to draw from to know how to do something correctly, either because you're learning something that almost no one's ever done or you're learning something that maybe only like a few people have done and they all did it very differently. So it's hard (laughs) to know, you know, what's the quote right answer for how to do something. But here's where... I think one of my big themes for learning will come into play, which is there's going to be a way you want to learn and you're going to try to rush it and it's just going to take you longer. So I think if you're really excited about learning to move, sometimes it's hard to say, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to pull up YouTube. I'm going to watch a video of someone doing it properly (laughs) over and over and over again to get an idea. Now here's where again, enthusiasm matters. So if you just want to dive right in because that's more fun to you and you're not going to like learning freestyle if you have to sit and watch videos. I totally get it. But it can save you so much time to watch other people do it. And where I find this most often is I'll be learning something that I know from another player and maybe it's on a video or maybe I dive right in and don't really do my homework and I'm having trouble with it. I'm having trouble with it. And then I see that person at a tournament and I'm like, hey, I'm like trying to learn this. Here's where I'm at. What am I doing wrong? And they're like, your hand is 180 degrees in the wrong direction or something. And it's like, oh, like if I just realized like this is the thing that was wrong, the move is so easy now. Like the number of times I'm like, now it's easy. Like if only I had understood it. Um, <laughs> but that's actually one of my favorite aspects of learning to move when you are trying it. And sometimes it seems impossible And when it seems impossible, there's kind of a couple ways that can go. Either it actually is almost impossible and it's going to take you (laughs) years to refine or you're doing it wrong and you just have to find the trick to the trick. (laughs) And once you get that, you can kind of click it in. So kind of wrap that first section up, find examples and learn from examples. The next stage you described is kind of the brainstorming stage, which I really like how you put it. 
And you mentioned something that I think is a lot of support in learning psychology, which I'm not an expert in, but I've read some interesting things about it that I'll try to relay without getting it totally wrong. But so when you're learning a move, you watch how people do it. Depending on the complexity of the move, there might be, you know, 15 moving parts, like all these different things that have to be right for the move to work, where your feet are, where your arms are, what your wind position is, what the angle of the disc is, how much spin is, how much spin there is. So there's all these different factors that are kind of like, you know, levers or levels on a soundboard. And you kind of have to like adjust all the levels until you can figure out how to get the move to work. And that's really what the brainstorming stage is for. So you have to, you're not only trying to mimic the perfect example that you found, but you have to play with all the variables to see what is going to get you there. Because at the beginning, you're not going to be able to hold those 15 things in your head yet. You just have to kind of work on a couple at a time, change them up and see if you can lock it down. But the reason I like what you said about brainstorming and trying different things is from what I understand, like, you know, your brain has neurons and your neurons use electricity and there's not really nuance. It's like an on off switch. So when you're learning how to do something, every time you do it wrong, your brain kind of like needs to test out a different, you know, neural pathway to see if it gets you closer. <laughs> so it's kind of like A-B testing. You try it this way, try it this way. Which one's closer? Let's do that. Like an eye exam. Like, is it A or B? A is better. Okay. Is it a or C? C is better. Is it C or D, right? So I think that's really how you should be learning a new move. So if you're trying to do the same thing over and over again and it's not working, it's sort of like that expression that's like, if you try to submit a thousand times, you're crazy. I can't remember the expression exactly, but like, <laughs> yeah. if it's not working, it means you need to try something a little bit different. And it could be the smallest thing. like Try putting your foot in a different position. Try standing up straighter. Try throwing less spin. Try throwing more spin. And by making those mistakes in different directions, you can get closer. And one kind of version of this, which I mentioned before in the podcast, is go to the extremes when you're having trouble. So let's say you're working on a chest roll and you're trying it at like a 45-degree angle and it's you're having trouble with it. Go extreme and go a perfectly 90 degree depending on your like a perfectly vertical chest roll. See how that works. <laughs> That's not working, go totally flat. See if that works. If that doesn't work, go the Teddy Oberhaus roll where you're like bent over, like on the ground. Like try the craziest <laughs> angles to see if that can get you closer. So like a, a situation where I do that a lot is on the set. So like let's say I'm trying to do a spinning catch. It's not working. I'll just be like, I'm going to set a quadruple and go for my one spinning catch and see if that works. And if that's not working, <laughs> now I'm going to set it barely off the ground and try to do it and just go to the extremes and see if that helps you iterate faster. Now I want to talk a little bit more about the moving parts and kind of finding out what they are. So I find when I'm learning to move, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is even though there's, you know, 15 moving parts, you don't even know what those moving parts are at the beginning. And maybe you can only identify a couple of them. So for instance, I've been working on the cray trap, I think Jano calls it, where you set it in front of you you jump in the air and you do a 180 degree spin in the air and then you catch the disc between your legs and kind of bring it on the ground. And, you know, when you first start, this is, I know there's 15 levers, but I can only control two because I can only like conceptualize two at the beginning. And it's sort of what angle is the disc at and how high is the disc at it? 
and where do I start my body? And I just experiment with those two things until I'm close enough. And then your body starts to internalize those components and you open up bandwidth to think about new components. So now that I kind of feel overwhelmed at the beginning, all, every single time, I mean, okay. well, I, not every single time, like we said, sometimes there's free moves, but it's shocking that number of times you think, no way, it can't be this hard. It can't be this hard, <laughs> but it is, but only at the beginning. But actually that makes me, reminds me of another question, which is how often do you think you will be able to hit the move within 20 minutes one time? A lot. Yeah. I think it's almost a hundred percent. More than you think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so rare that I can't hit a move once almost immediately. And actually this is a good little, I don't know what the name of this bias is off the top of my head. Maybe you do, but you know how like one of the problems with social media is you go on social media and you see only the best versions of people and you don't see their low moments and it's sort of a misleading. <laughs> I think this happens if you ever experience this, don't fret, where you show someone a new move and they hit it in like five tries and you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> they're so good. They're so much better than me. But think that's just how it works. Everybody learns a move in the first couple of tries, but then it takes 10 years to master. And I'll give you a great example of this. In Paganello 2014, Bill Wright showed me the Bilbs roll and like the second try I nailed it and Bilbs is like, oh, you're so good. Like you're going to do this in the tournament later today. And now <laughs> it is almost 10 years later and I'm still working on the Bilbs role. Like I haven't put a lot of time in it. <laughs> it's starting to get better. But, you know, even though I could hit it in the first two minutes, now we're 10 years later and I still really haven't mastered it. So don't, don't get discouraged if you see people hitting moves that you show them right away. But at the same time, don't get too optimistic when you hit the move right away. Because the number of times I think, okay, I got this move. Uh, you know, it's not perfect yet, but it'll be good in a couple months. And then suddenly it's 10 years later. And I'm like, you know, I never really mastered that move. I should probably put some dedicated time into practicing it. Um, but there's, that's also nice, too. Like, it's nice that you can kind of get a proof of concept early. And then it's just about refining to get it to the point where it's solid. I know progress is exciting. I Exactly. So I'm running there's anything left on the brainstorming stage. But I think maybe another don't get discouraged note is that idea of freeing up bandwidth. So the more you do something, the better able or the more bandwidth in your brain you'll free up to start thinking about other factors that will help you get the move smoother. So I think about this now because I have been working on my crosswind chest roll set for 10 years now. And now I feel like I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, like what is the angle of my middle finger, my right hand? Like it's still not perfect. I have a ton of work to do on it, but at least I feel like I have 50 levers now and I can, every time I do a chest roll, I can think about different tiny little differences in how my arm is positioned how it's angled and where my feet are. But it's only after doing it for years and years and years that I can have the room in my brain to be like, okay, put 99% of it on autopilot and do it the same way you always do it but then we're just going to make this adjustment. So maybe another way to think about it is you want to get to the point where your moves are adjustable and customizable. So the beginning is just sort of like, I just need to be able to hit the move in perfect conditions <laughs> the exact same way. But once you get a move really mastered, you reach the point where it doesn't really matter where it is or what the angle is or the wind, all the windows start to get bigger. So it reminds me of another part, which I also, maybe I'm like fading into the mastery stage, but I think this is kind of a something that happens both at the beginning and towards the end, which is 
your margin of error for all the different pieces increases. So let's make it really simple. Let's say you're working on a catch and there's two parts of a catch. There's the set and there's the catch. So when you're learning a new catch, at the beginning, your margin of error on the set and on the catch are really small. It's like if there's anything wrong with the set, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. If there's anything wrong with the catch, it's not going to work. And this is the stage where a move feels impossible. You think the the window for me to catch this is so small that it's never going to be practical. But as you get better at it, the margin of error for both of those components gets bigger. So suddenly a wide variety of sets will be good enough for you to be able to pull off the catch. And similarly, even if the set's not very bad, your catch window is going to have a much bigger margin of error that lets you pull off the catch despite the set having problems. And multiply that out to all the tiny little components. You start to learn not only how to make those adjustments that I described before, but your ability to deal with variance within those components becomes a lot higher. And when you've truly mastered something, you feel like it's totally customizable and you can deal with anything that goes wrong because you know how to respond to all the different things that can go wrong. Does that make sense? (laughs) Makes sense. And that's really the best feeling. And that is something that I think takes a long time and you have to be patient for it. Because one thing that is interesting and here's where I'll veer a little bit into science that I'm, you know, giving you secondhand from a, at least one book I'm thinking of that I read a long time ago. So hopefully I don't get this too wrong. But for you to master new skills, your brain has to develop myelin. And myelin takes a really long time for your brain to put together. I don't know if it's weeks or months or years, but it takes a really long time to build a new neural pathway for a new move. So even though we often have this experience of learning to move pretty quickly, like a free move, it will take years for your brain to kind of like build the highway. So here's my bad off the cup analogy. Let's say when you learn to move on the first day, you're on a grass trail where you just matted down the grass by walking over it. And that's your neural network for that move. <laughs> so it works. It'll get you from A to B, but it's going to take six months to turn that little matted grass highway into a beautiful paved road. And so you just have to give it time. So one of the strategies I have when I learn a new move is to kind of rely on not just raw hours practice, but time spent learning the move. So instead of like, if I imagine two different approaches, let's say I have five moves that I want to learn. One way you could do it is you could learn each move sequentially. You learn move A, then you move on to move B, then you move on to move C. That, in my opinion, and from what I understand from the scientists, is the wrong way to do it. It would be better to work on all five a little bit every day over time because you're giving your brain time to build the neural network for all those moves over a longer period of time Mm -hmm. than if you did it sequentially. Is that your experience? I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say managing your effort is as important as your learning technique. It's like there's all these, there's like different axes and like you can have the best learning technique, but if you're just spending one day and learning for six hours, it's not going to be as good as if you spent 20 minutes over the next month every day. Yeah. And it is tricky because it is a balance between putting in enough time that you've actually done work and given your brain something to work with and putting in too much time that you're getting really diminishing returns. So I wouldn't go to the extreme and say, I'm going to work on a hundred moves every day and hope that in 
five years, they're going to be good because I don't think there's enough time for that. So going back to my kind of A-B testing of when you're brainstorming, you have to get things wrong. One thing that I try to do, and I'm not sure how supported this is, but I need to give my brain the model, which means I kind of have to hit it or get closer to hitting it before I move on to something else. I'm sure if I try and move 50 times and don't get anywhere close in those 50 times, I probably am learning. But I think if I do it 70 times and one time it's right, that one time I send that jolt to my brain that's like, that's the model. Like whatever that was that we just hit that one time by sheer luck, remember that and build towards that. And one kind of sample of one evidence I have for this, and again, I know using your life's experience as evidence for conclusions about how your brain works is not always the best thing to do. But the number of times I did a study tape, I thought of a move for it that I'd never done before. It took me 10, 20, 30 minutes to hit it for the study tape. And I thought, oof, that was super hard. Not sure when I'm going to come back to working on that ever again. And then, you know, six months later, having not tried that move in the interim, it's (laughs) locked in. And I think that's because I hit it once and my brain started building out that highway for it. And then another factor, which we can go into a little more, is I think also having video and watching it is also giving my brain a reminder of that network. Like, this is what you're supposed to do. So like having like video is kind of a cheat code here, which we can talk about a little more in a little bit, which is visualization is a really powerful way to learn. One of the easiest ways to visualize is to watch yourself on video doing the thing you want to do. So if it took me 500 tries to hit the move once, that activated my brain, told me that one time is the right way to do it. But guess what? I have a video of it. So now I'm going to cheat and I'm going to show my my brain that video 150 times. And for my brain, that's like doing it 150 times. Maybe not perfectly. There might be some signal loss there or something, but it's it's close and it's a lot faster for my brain to learn watching it perfectly over and over again than to keep doing it 500 times. So, um, okay. So mix your mix time with effort. I think that's a super, super handy tool. One other trick to learning is to really focus on one thing at a time. So no, I'm not contradicting myself. What I mean by that is when you're actually in the moment, in the present, practicing the move, don't try to do too many things at once. So I think I mentioned this on another podcast at some point. If I'm working on a upside down scarecrow rush, I don't know why this is on my mind right now. You might be tempted to say, okay, I'm going to throw it to myself upside down. I'm going to throw in a behind the back upside down pull, and then I'm going to do my scarecrow brush. And you're thinking is I'm getting two birds with one stone. I'm going to work on my behind the back pole and my scarecrow brush. <laughs> it seems like the science says, I hate saying that. It's like I'm just like blithering about some nonsense I read a long time ago. But it seems like that is not an optimal strategy. And it's better to focus on one thing at a time. I don't totally know the reasons for that. I think in my experience, that's felt like it's been true every time I try to mix something else in the pot. I just get distracted. And maybe my semi-scientific answer for why that happens is your brain is really bad at task switching and it's a lot better when you're monotasking. So if you can really, it's like actually fatiguing. So when your brain is switching back and forth between things, it kind of like wears your brain down. But if you can focus on as few things as possible, you will learn them better. So another way to kind of sum that up is 
kind of take it one piece at a time. And you could even go further, which is break that piece down into as many pieces as possible and take those pieces at a time. So for instance, I'll keep using my good example of working on a catch. If you're having trouble with it, just be like, I'm only going to work on the set. I'm not even going to try the catch. I'm just going to practice setting it where I know the set's supposed to be. And I'm just going to work on that for 10 minutes. And then once that feels more comfortable, now I'm going to work on just the catching moment motion. I'm not even going to set it. I'm just going to practice the catching motion. Once I get that, now I can put the two pieces together. And this is where the play slow, learn fast mantra really comes in. Because you're just going to want to try the move over and over again. That's what everyone wants to do because it's more satisfying <laughs> in theory. But in practice, it's a much slower way to learn. If you can break it down into pieces and learn each piece separately, you'll get to where you want to be a lot faster. And for most people, I think that's more satisfying in the end. But I also do understand that if you're not having fun learning and you're not having fun because you're breaking it into pieces, then forget about it. But for me, it's usually worth it. And it only usually takes a couple of minutes. It's like, ah, oh, this isn't working. I'm just going to set it for two minutes and then I'm going to go back to the move. Yeah, I agree. I do the same thing. And then one other aspect of this, which I'm curious what you think about this, and I almost never do this because for me, this is where my enthusiasm is too low. I think there's a lot of value in practicing without the disc. And that's where you can really do it in the way we talked about it in music. So in music, it's nice because you don't have to worry about gravity for the most part. So you can actually execute things really slow and learn them much faster. Whereas at the end of the day, if you want to learn to guide us and you, once you set the disc in there, you only have so much time to do that guide us. You can't really like put on your time machine and slow down time and let your brain really think about what you're doing if you're using the disc. So the way around yeah, that is to not use a disc. <laughs> and maybe the best example yeah. of this strategy would be spinning. So if you want to learn how to spin, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. So talk about that. Like, why is it a really good strategy for spinning? Because you can break things down exactly like you said, one piece at a time. And I tell people, here's the five things you need to do when you're spinning. But right now we're just going to work on one of the five things. And when I see you do that, then I'm going to work on the second thing. And so your brain can focus on one piece. Well, it's also, you're asking your brain way too much to learn how to do a double spinning move in real time. And I think part of why so many people have trouble with spinning and why a lot of people's spinning techniques are really poor is because they try to learn it in real time like that. And, you know, like I'm saying, there's probably 35, there's probably thousands of things if you've depended on what level of detail you want to get into, but there's 30 things going on in your brain and your brain can't juggle those in real time to learn something. But if you go really slowly, your brain can actually understand what you're doing. And one thing I like to try to do even now with moves that I think I know is to see, do I actually know what I'm doing and why this is working? And if I don't, it's probably a move that I'm not as consistent with. And if I slow down and kind of rebuild it, my brain will be a lot better at it. So ask yourself, like when I'm spinning, do I even know what I'm doing and could <laughs> I do it slowly? And one thing I think is interesting is I think if you ask a lot of people to spin really slowly without the disc, most people just fall over. They can't even do it. It's a lot harder in some ways. But part of it is they don't actually know what their feet are doing when they're spinning. They're relying on kind of unconscious instinct from doing it over and over again. And they use the momentum to get their balance, which is fine, but it doesn't lead to 
as good results in the end. Mm. So sometimes it's really helpful to, to put the disc down and try the movement. I mean, especially anything that's really body intensive. Like I think there's value in doing this even for something like a chest roll, but it's super valuable when it's something that's your whole body's involved and getting rid of the disc lets you really think about what your body's doing. Okay. Do we have time for a tangent? Yeah, of course. Do you think we should be learning moves better? Because, okay, so when I talk about learning moves, I'm always like, first you learn to complete it, then you learn to do it in the jam, and then you learn to do it in competition. I agree That's kind of the standard we have right now. Yeah. But if we were talking about ballet, that would be, we learn like 30%, or like 30% as capable or as, what is... Like efficiently? uh, Like competent. We're like we're like thirty percent as competent as our moves as a ballet dancer is with their moves. God, it's like, like they just learn it. It's three like a ballet dancer well. could do it a hundred percent of the time, and we would be doing it only thirty percent of the time. Something like that. Yeah, or their move is three times as more precise, or they're standing up straighter, and everything is balanced because they learn it in a specific way. And I think okay, so for a ballet, one of the reasons they can do that is because they know what the perfect one looks like Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure we know what the perfect guide is or the perfect scarecrow looks like so it's interesting so in the lost podcast i made this really tortured analogy that i'm somehow going to try again (laughs) in this podcast (laughs) which is my trombone piano analogy so i have this idea that you know in a lot of ways a piano is a much more complicated instrument than a trombone there's you know 88 keys you have 10 fingers, there's in some value neutral sense, way more you can do with a piano than a trombone. But the best piano player isn't more skilled than the best trombone player. It's all about what you do with what's available to you. So within the limitations of a trombone, you don't have 10 fingers and 88 keys, but you have to work with what you do have in much more sophisticated ways. So I think that kind of applies to freestyle like freestyle is more like piano and something like baseball is more like a trombone so i think about how a pitcher will spend their entire life working on two pitches and all they think about all day long is how to execute two pitches and so the level of competency and detail they have to have for those two pitches is far higher than would ever be expected for a freestyler because a freestyler needs to know this is a little controversial, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, whatever, however you want to I mean, um, put aside the whole thing that you only need a handful of moves to be a really great freestyler. But I just mean like, you know, even just throwing, I mean, they have two pitches, we have 10 throws. So we can't really be expected to learn everything so competently. And we have to make sacrifices to have a breadth of vocabulary. But it kind of raises another interesting point about learning in general, which is, how much do you commit to a move and how far how far do you take that move? How long do you learn that move? How much mastery do you need to obtain? Which I think is really move specific. So I think if you're working on, like in my case, the cray trap, I don't really need the cray trap to be a hundred percent move that I can do at any <laughs> at all times. It's a it's a dessert move. But the crosswind chest roll is my fastball, and I am happy to dedicate 20 years of my life working on it almost every day to get it 
to a higher level of mastery because it's so important. I see. So do you think the important utility moves we should be learning in a way similar to ballet moves where we're like, because this is important, you have to learn it from the fundamentals. And when you can do it, it's like spinning where you can spin slow. You can do the chest roll slow and you can break it down. Yes. And I actually think there's another good analog to music, right? And let's just put it under the umbrella of fundamentals. So things that are fundamental should be things you're always working on, both for maintenance and for improvement. So the greatest piano players in the world still sit down and do their scales, the same kind of stuff that you would do as a brand new piano player. And certainly when I was a drummer, I was always doing just basic sticking patterns over and over and over and over again. I never stopped working on the things that I learned at the beginning, even when I was a much more skilled player. And I think that's true for freestyle. Always like I've been doing a lot of counter back rolls lately. Like I probably had a very high degree of proficiency at a counter back roll 10 years ago, but I was like, you know, I need a little remedial course and really need to put some more time (laughs) into it. And I'm always working on my catches, you know, always, 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 always. So I think, you know, if you were really regimented in your practice and believe it or not, even I'm not this regimented, but like a way a lot of musicians would do it is you would have your first, let's say you're practicing an hour, first 20 minutes, you're just doing fundamentals. And it's not until you get through that, that you get to do the fun stuff or the new stuff. And that's probably a good approach for freestyle. I think so. Even the hardest ballet class in the world starts with plies, which is the most basic thing. Yeah. You always, always got to work on, always got to work on the basics. Um, I was thinking of something else with my piano trombone analogy, but I feel like I'll just let that one rest for a minute. So I guess then let's talk more about mastery. So what are the timelines? How long do you think it takes to master a move? And I think it's fair to say, Almost every freestyle move is like the blues takes a couple of minutes to learn and a lifetime to master. But I mean, realistically, at what point do you think, like, what's a normal timeline to feel like, okay, this move is really in my bag and I can do it in the finals of the world championship under pressure? Five years. That's my yeah. first order of approximation. That's what I was thinking. That's definitely what I was thinking. Um, I think that varies. It's kind of funny. I think almost how. I'm full of analogies these days. Almost how when you're a kid, you can learn a language at the beginning. You have that plastic brain and you can learn English in a couple of years. But if you're a 40-year-old, it's going to take you five years. There's definitely something at the beginning of your freestyle career where everything you do then, you will, you know, quote unquote, master within a couple of years. But after that, it seems like everything takes five to 10 years. And (laughs) part of that might be, and this is another interesting learning point, is that when you're new, every move you're learning, that's all you're doing every day over and over and over again for years. Whereas once you're in year 10, your new move doesn't need to come out very much because you've got so much else in your bag to rely on. So it's not going to get nearly the same kind of attention. So maybe in theory, you can learn moves on a one-year, two-year time frame if that's all you're working on. But realistically, once you're further in your freestyle career, you're not going to be putting in the time with those moves to get them down. Yeah. Plus you're limited by myelin. Yeah. And I was about to bring that up, which is, I really think some things cannot be learned by brute force and you do just have to wait for them to get better. But that's also the most satisfying aspect of learning to me. It's the magic of it where you think, I don't remember getting better at this, but suddenly 
it works. <laughs> it, I didn't, it wasn't a slow iteration, just boom, like something happened and now I can just do this move and I totally get it. And that's usually that time component in the mylar kind of getting laid down. But it brings me to another idea, which is kind of like the move tree or like the video game power system where you up up your different levels. I think a little antidote about my worldview for better or worse when i was a kid i think part of what motivated me to do well in school is i had this idea that everything i do now is going to make everything else in the future easier so if i take shortcuts now when i'm older i'll struggle and i think that turned out to be really helpful in my life and i think about that a lot in freestyle which is if you build all the building blocks really well and you do kind of have a comprehensive approach to learning the right things at the right time, it does get easier and easier as you go along. So I think there's lots of things that I feel like I don't have to really learn in some sense because I've already learned the five pieces of it and I'm just rearranging them (laughs) into new things. And that's something that's really satisfying. So to give kind of a concrete example, although it's sort of an odd one, is when I really started dedicating myself to getting good at counter, the first few years, it just felt like counter so hard. But eventually, I reached this point where I could do a translation. Like, I had a translation ability that I didn't have before, which is I could learn something either spin and pretty quickly just translate it into the other spin, put in a little bit of time with that spin, and then get it. But that was like a learning ability that I didn't have before, but I gained from building blocks. And that's also something that's really satisfying. And I also have learned, and I think about this a lot now, which is you'll always be surprised how many things end up being building blocks to the next thing. The number of times I'm learning (laughs) something, I think like, this is pretty specific. I'm not sure how much I'm going to be doing this. This can't be that helpful. And then six years later, I'm learning some completely different move. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but that thing that I was doing with that weird angle, like that's perfect here. And then that becomes a building block that saves me two years of learning on some new move. So I think my moral for that is don't take shortcuts. Take the time to learn it right now because it will pay dividends later. Yeah, I agree. And I'll give you a counter example, which is I never really learned how to foot tap it. And now it's year 15 <laughs> and I just, uh, so I, I'm talking Back about Dan right? <laughs> But here's the, it's like almost too late for me. I'm like the 40 year old trying to learn French. I was, I was trying to plan to do a podcast with Daniel within the clocker counter framework, not like a new podcast. And I was thinking of questions, which is like really the only thing I want to talk about is foot tapping. Like, why can't I foot tap? Like, it's, it's been so long and I can't, I just cannot get better at it. And I really wish I'd spent more time on it at the beginning, but I always I'll get it eventually. Hear the, like the five-year-old can learn language way better than the 40-year-old, but the 40-year-old can use a computer and flashcards. We have like the 40-year-old can use all these different tools to help them learn. So if you're Look, older... <laughs> My understanding is that children have a super high degree of neuroplasticity that older people don't have. And it's not just neuroplasticity, it's neuroplasticity directed at language learning. But I also think this is one of those things that there's getting, there's pushback on of like, maybe we 
unnecessarily <laughs> lose our neuroplasticity or there are like ways to reopen it. So I don't really know. That's not my expertise, but there's there's something to it that I don't want to discredit because I do think there's a lot of evidence that it's much harder to learn certain kinds of things as you get older. But I do think in freestyles, almost nobody starts freestyling until they're 18 or 19. And there's a lot of limitations on learning when you're younger because of just the physics of it, the size of your body, the size of the disc, how much power you need in the disc to be able to do certain kinds of moves. And you can also learn bad habits. I think if you start very young and like, for instance, in basketball, when really young people try to learn to do a three-point shot early on, a lot of times it ends up hurting them because the mechanics they need as a small child to make a three-point shot are not the mechanics they use when they're grown up. And so they basically <laughs> learn it wrong, and it's hard to unlearn it. So I think there's an element of that in freestyle too, which another thing, try not to learn something wrong because it's so much harder to <laughs> relearn something than to get it right the first time. Yeah, habits. Habits are everything. I mean, it's that's another way to put it. You know, a lot of learning really is just habit building. And so <sighs> taking shortcuts is kind of like using a bad habit to get you halfway to the move. But what you don't realize is that habit is a habit and it's hard to break. Mm -hmm. And you'll probably... I do think from habit science that you'll never erase the bad habit you can mask <laughs> it you can you can kind of you're like an addict basically like you'll always be an addict even if you never do the drug again like if you build a bad <laughs> habit it'll always be there and you just are fighting it constantly so learning something wrong is really painful i'm trying to think of bad habits i have that i'm masking all the time there's so many i just none are coming to my head do you have any things you always have to remind yourself oh, don't do it this way it's wrong uh, I don't know. It's probably like all the crutch moves. Like anytime I get thrown counter, I'm like, oh, then I have to swing it behind my back because that's the only thing that exists there. In fairness, I think my guidance is like 10 bad habits. And every time I go for guidance now, I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And if I can get all those singles out in my brain fast enough, I'll have a nice guidance. But most of the time I still <laughs> I think so. fall back into something. I think yours um, can be broken down to two things. Your guidance. It, which it's, are it's block on your it's they're both on the right leg so you block on your jumping leg which is your right and then you stretch it when you're in the air that's it okay that's that'll be all i'm thinking about <laughs> oh i think there's so much more to learning but i i'm sort of running out of things that i think are important you know another little motto that i brought up before is life is long and so especially when you mention that you think it takes about five years to really master a move, if you go in knowing that, I think it creates a lot more peace about learning. <laughs> so I think the number of times I think, man, I've been working on this for so long. Like, is it worth it? Should I just move on? And I just remind myself that it just takes this long and it's okay to put in the time and not get discouraged too much by it. We talked a lot about techniques when you're motivated, but have some techniques for when you're not motivated, which I think is a lot of the time. I think so. No, go ahead. Okay. The first one is time box your practice. And mm -hmm. I tell people this a lot, like just do 60 seconds of practice. You can do it right before you go to bed. If you forget like 60 seconds is not a big deal at any point in the day and doing mm -hmm. just 60 seconds of practice will have huge gains if you do it consistently. Agreed. Um, 
reminds you of a couple of things. One, there is evidence that doing things before bed is better for learning. Just <laughs> throw that away, do whatever you want with it. And it actually makes sense. I didn't mention this before, but your brain does all of its learning when you're sleeping. <laughs> so you have to get good sleep. I think just like we did the growth mindset podcast, we're going to have to do the why we sleep podcast where we just <laughs> talk about sleep and how important it is. But you are not learning if you're not sleeping. And if you're doing anything that interrupts your sleep, like alcohol or caffeine or anything else like close to bed, you're also kind of disrupting your learning cycle. So, you know, if your goal was to learn as fast as possible, I wouldn't practice six hours and then right before bed, drink a bunch of coffee and beer and <laughs> just kind of like destroy a lot of your gains. Um, but yeah, so I've been reading some research by this person, I can't remember if he's a psychologist or not, who studies procrastination. And he has a lot of good techniques to overcome procrastination. And I think those techniques are similarly helpful to overcoming lack of motivation. So one, this is more about procrastination, but I think it's interesting and it's something to think about if you feel unmotivated. The current thinking about procrastination is it's really an emotion regulation problem or an emotional problem rather than a time management problem. So when people are procrastinating, it's usually because there's some kind of like emotional block. And for a lot of people, that's because it's something that's hard. And that fact that it's hard makes it stressful and they're kind of animals, flight or flight, don't want to be stressed. <laughs> so this happens to be a lot of work where I'm like, oh, I need to do this thing. And I'm just kind of scared to do it because it's hard. And once I kind of address that and just kind of note it, like, oh, it's I'm scared because this is hard and I don't think I'm going to do it. Once I kind of identify that, it becomes easy to be like, yeah, but like I've done this a million times, so I'll be fine. And then I get started and do it. So sometimes that can be helpful if you're feeling unmotivated. But to get even more concrete and even easier, the two kind of phrases he used that I really like are just get started. And this one, I guess, is of a phrase, but just like identify the next task. So just get started, I think, fits well with your 60-second hypothesis. And so one, any amount of practice over time adds up so quickly. I mean, think of all the people who are so good at freestyle who never practice, but they're really just getting in <laughs> little bits of practice all the time without thinking about it. But if you just put 20 minutes... I'll, I'll put it in another. There's so many times where I have a new freestyler who's been playing a few months and they're lagging behind everyone else. And I always tell them, like, if you practiced 10 minutes every day for the next five days, you'll be better than everybody else here. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> that's how little it will take to do it. Um, so I agree with that premise. But the just get started thing is really helpful. So for me, believe it or not, I have a lot of trouble getting motivated to practice, especially these days. And what I always do is I go in and I say, I'm going to practice for 15 minutes. That's it. And for someone else, it might be one minute or five minutes or 10 minutes. So for me, it's like 15 minutes. It's impossible to say no to that. I'm barely going to even notice that I use 15 minutes of my day. And what almost always happens pretty much every single time I get started and I'm like, this is great. I'm like this isn't <laughs> nearly as bad as I thought it was. Now that I have my nails on, now that I have the disc, I feel motivated. And I almost always play more than 15 minutes. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30, maybe it's two hours, but just getting started is a super powerful technique, especially if you don't put an expectation on yourself about what you're going to do. Just say, I'm just going to get started. I'm going to do it as long as I feel motivated. And one little freestyle specific aspect of that is I do think 
one of the ways my lack of motivation manifests is whether I put on nails and it seems like such a little thing and like shoes, <laughs> like a lot of times what stops me or like in my, you know, <laughs> monkey brain, nothing. I'm like, Oh, I want to put my shoes on. I have to tie them. I have to switch out of my pants and put on shorts and I have to put my nails. So one way I break that is to just get started. I just say, forget all that. I'm just going to play with my jeans on, no <laughs> nails, just grab a disc or like, maybe I don't even want a disc. I don't even want to get this slick out. I'll just grab a whiz ring. Like just whatever is the least difficult thing to get started. That's what'll get started. And honestly, like, I think if you look at my skill set, it's arises out of that core laziness and that core principle. Like I'm really good at rolling and catching. Why? Cause I can do those things without putting on nails or having a disc. <laughs> like I can do that with a wizarding basically. Um, so that's a really good technique, but then the other flavor of just get started, but I really think of it as another technique is identify the next task. So a lot of times when people are trying to get out of procrastinating, they say, okay, like I'm going to work for an hour or, you know, no matter what, I'm going to go practice for 30 minutes. And it turns out that kind of technique doesn't work very well. But if you instead identify concrete tasks you're going to do, it works a lot better. So for me, I'll say not, I'm going to go practice 20 minutes. I say, I'm just going to get started. And the next task I'm going to do is I'm going to put my nails on. And that's all I have to think about right now. Just <laughs> go downstairs, put my nails on. Then I put my nails on. I'm like, okay, what's next? Put my shoes on. What's next? Slicks my, slick my desk. So just figuring out, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do. And then eventually I'll get into that kind of, I don't know if I'd call it a true flow state because it's not, I, mean, I guess sometimes it's flow state. In the best days it's flow state. But I eventually get to the point where I'm not forcing myself to do things. And in fact, I kind of go the other way. I'm like, oh, I have these six things I want to do now. And I'm <laughs> kind of like, oh, I hope I have time to do them all. And that's when you're in a good place when instead of trying to figure out what the next task is going to do, you're trying to figure out which task you're not going to do because you've identified too many things that you want to do. In programming, so I think, we call that divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. I love that. Yeah. That's great. Super useful. Uh, Another little cheat code, this one doesn't seem to work as well for me, but I know it works for a lot of other people, is build a reward system. It's also a good habit technique. Um, and this is kind of a different form. So one, like find a way to reward yourself for doing the thing that you want to do. So if you're trying to get excited about practicing, practice for 15 minutes and then give yourself your favorite ice cream or like what's your favorite <laughs> show or whatever. So it's kind of a combination of giving your brain that feedback of like, when I do this thing, that's a little bit hard for me to do. Something good happens, but it's also this like pairing, which kind of like tricks your brain into thinking the thing that you really like is the same as the thing that you don't like so much. So that can be a really powerful tool. So one thing I started doing, which kind of fits in my, you know, broken capitalist brain is I give myself a sticker every time I practice. So I have this like it's like it's this blank wall decal that's on my in the spin factory and i have these little circular stickers and every time i put in at least 15 minutes and it only has to be 15 minutes i put a sticker on and it's super satisfying i get to see my and like a prisoner making an x on the side <laughs> of their cell i get to see like the countdown of days and there's some days where i the only reason I go practice is I want to get that sticker. You know, I just want that stupid sticker. That's how mobile um, games make money. Yeah. yeah. That's so true, actually. Like anything that a video game or social media app does to make you keep coming back, just build that into your <laughs> practice routine and that will get you motivated to play more. Isn't there a word for that? It's that's like really... mind hacking or something. I don't know. There's a term for it. 
Yeah, I don't know. I've heard mind hacking, but I'm not sure what else that might mean. But that would make sense. Um, I think of it as like habit pairing. But again, it's for some reason it doesn't seem to work as well for me. But the just get started works super well for me. For me as well. And then maybe, maybe another aspect of it is kind of always have something that you... Well, let me put it this way. Once I'm practicing, there's usually five things I want to practice that I hate practicing, five things that I want to practice that I like <laughs> practicing, and then some things in the middle. And if I'm really unmotivated, I'll just say, I'm going to work on the things that I like practicing that are easy. So especially for me, like the thing that I like practicing is the crosswind roll set because it's really low energy. It's kind of satisfying. It's very fun. I just have a stack of a hundred whiz rings and I'll just sit there and I'll just roll set them. And usually by starting with that thing that I like practicing, I kind of get into a flow of it. And then I, and then happy to move on to the things that are harder to practice. And so that, that works well for me. Do you remember the work summer that we did with Jake? I do. I do remember that, but in fairness, I was less involved with that than everyone else. I don't want to pretend that I was (laughs) super involved, but that was a cool idea. So tell everyone about that. So we started an email thread and at the end of every week, we would just write down what we did and what we practiced. And it didn't, we didn't have to accomplish anything. We just wrote down what we practiced or yeah, the time we put in, we practiced and it created a sense of like accountability. But I think even more than that, it was like the social like reward of being able to say report. It was like your sticker on the wall, but you get to tell your friend that you accomplished something. So I had two thoughts on that. One, which is a tangent. Now that it's, now that I've been on the internet for 20 years or however long it's been, there's this funny thing is when I'm looking for an email and I type in my search terms in my email client and these like emails from 10 years ago show up and every now and then I'll click on an email and not only will I not remember it, I'm just like, I don't know who this person is. Like the writing style <laughs> is so foreign to me. They're like, like an alien took over my body in 2014 and wrote this email and i had this experience recently where a work summer email came up and i was like i forgot about work summer and i was reading this email i was like i don't know this person i don't even (laughs) it's not just that i don't remember writing this i just like i would never write like this now it just sounds like someone else talking it's just really really strange Um, but the other thing so this might be one of those things that there are two sides of and they don't agree so i don't know what side is right but i'd always heard that account and I don't want to say accountability, but like announcing your intentions is really good for goals. But I've since learned that that apparently doesn't work very well. And the example of this would be telling all your friends, I'm going on a diet and I'm going to lose 10 pounds by the end of the year. And I think the new research I've heard about that is that it doesn't work very well because you get so much of the reward just by announcing it that (laughs) it basically diminishes the value of accomplishing it. So I do have this kind of weird thing where I try to keep all my goals secret (laughs) so that I don't get any positive feedback in the moment so that I'm still motivated to keep working on something. But that might be something I'm wrong about or there's not agreement on. I think there's a way you can do it. So like tell people your effort. Don't tell them your results. And don't tell me your intentions. You'd be like, I practiced 30 minutes this week and that was good for me because you want to reward. I should also say that just today there was another 
New York Times article about how all this behavioral science is falsified. So <laughs> not good falsified, like literally falsified. So, you know, take everything we say with a grain of salt because some of it may turn out to be false in the future. But just got to go with what seems to be right now. And if something works for me, I keep it. And if it doesn't, I discard it. Mm. Yeah, work summer. What a, what a foreign time. That was probably already like... 2017? Six... 2016? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think it was when I was taking the bar. Yeah, that's already like six years ago. That's really crazy. Um, God, there's so much more to learning. There's so much to learning. I know. There's going to be a whole complimentary but, podcast episode on like giving feedback. <laughs> it's like, this is all the receiving end, but the other end yeah, is a whole podcast. Yeah, there's other techniques too. we haven't talked about. Like we mentioned it, but there's so much you could say about using video. There's so much you could say about visualization. I'll just give a quick visualization study, which I've never forgotten. And again, this could be one of those ones that is kind of BS, but apparently they used to do this study where they would take two groups of people and they'd have one group practice shooting free throws and they have the other group at the free throw line visualizing free throws without the basketball. And apparently that, sorry, had a similar learning, like they improved at the same rate, <laughs> even though one literally didn't even take the shot. So I think about that sometimes. I don't do a great job of that, but sometimes when I've been hurt, I would take, you know, five or 10 minutes to visualize things. And then apparently video is kind of a cheat code for visualization. If you don't have the strength to sit down in a chair and just think about freestyle moves, because watching the video basically triggers the same brain function as visualization, not surprisingly, because you're actually visualizing or you're like seeing something and you know, it's probably the main reason I make study tapes. I don't know if everyone understands that or not. And it's also why for me, the study tapes have evolved. Like originally I had a lot more of the process in them and I had like a lot of different versions of every move working my way towards the best version. And that was when I thought watching the mess ups was good, but it seems like the opposite. Like you should be watching highlights of yourself. If you want to get better, it gets super tedious, but like there's so much value in watching yourself execute things the way you want to execute them. And that teaches your brain how to do that more consistently than trying it over and over and over again. If that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I wonder if that changes if you have a coach with you. Like if you're just coaching yourself, watch the highlights. But if someone else is there doing analysis, I wonder if there's benefit to Well, I think well, I think for sure. Look, I think there's value in watching yourself do things wrong so you can diagnose it. But beyond the diagnosis stage, you should stop. <laughs> sort of like, okay, my my, I needed to watch it once to know that my leg was in the wrong spot. And now I never want to look at that again because I don't want that to burn into my brain. I just want the right version to burn into my brain. But also even like it's valuable to watch other people do things, but it's even more valuable to watch yourself do it. So so let's say like you were copying Donnie Rhodes's form on his flamingitis. Watch how he does it and then do it 10,000 times on video until you accidentally do it mostly like Donnie Rhodes and then throw away the Donnie Rhodes tape and just watch your tape because that will be more powerful for your brain because your brain, because I experience this, like if I see a video of myself, I'm like, 
feeling the emotions I felt <laughs> in that moment. I'm like twitching, like my body's like trying to do what I did in that moment because your brain kind of like inhabits that video and inhabits that moment and re-triggers those same neural networks. And that's what really helps you build a skill. Whereas if I watch someone else do it, I'm not living in their body and my brain as I watch it. You just have to think about what your brain is actually doing when you're watching something and your brain treats it differently when it's you versus somebody else. This is how I understand That's it. That's so great. This is a dangerous podcast because we're like so into science that I'm like, I'm like third hand. Like I learned it from the guy who learned it from the guy who learned it from the... <laughs> Might as well be a same, BuzzFeed same article guy. that we've been Yeah, from. this is... Yeah, exactly. Okay, these are... At the very least, I'm not a big BuzzFeed reader, but yeah, it would be very funny if... Yeah, it'd be very funny if I passed away and like all my books were just like printouts of BuzzFeed articles, <laughs> like 15 ways to be a better person. It was a tweet. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, ba- just assume like all my knowledge is from Malcolm Gladwell and equivalents. It's like <laughs> people who take other people's work, popularize it and give it to people like me. Um, so there's a little bit of a game of telephone. But like I said, you know, I... If I hear something that sounds compelling and makes sense to me and I try it and it seems to work, then I uh, I stick with it. But I've been burned a few times, you know. There's uh, there's one person I won't name because it's still coming out who falsified all their data and it's very disappointing. But luckily, this person was studying something that didn't affect my freestyle decision making. Okay, so maybe we can stop there. We should leave room for other learning podcasts. You know, I keep talking about how we do so much better when we prepare and then we don't prepare. But I think uh, I'll listen back to this and think of the kinds of things we miss. But is there anything else kind of jumping out to you that you wish we talked nope, about? That was everything. Do you think it will be, I don't know if the right word is surprising, but maybe I'll put it this way. Do you think other people have thought this much about learning or is this going to sound really foreign to them? Mm, I think it will sound, no, it will sound like we spent a lot of time on something that is, they was te- it was tedious like i don't know if surprising but like tedious when you it's kind of like when you s- that nerd in the library that like does all of this boring reading and like man i don't want to be that guy that's we're, we're that guy i know but it's kind of interesting and maybe this is just a difference between you know to use your word a nerd and not a nerd sometimes i think when we talk it sounds like we literally went to the library and before we did anything we just studied how to be as efficient as possible which is not at all how it happened like it's very organic you know i think like i said like a lot of these kind of things i learned when i was a musician and i the musicianship is much more fully developed than freestyle so i had really fantastic mentors that had done all this work for me and they taught it to me and i just used it in freestyle and then a lot of stuff just happens organically like i wasn't i didn't set out to learn how to learn better or learn how to learn how to freestyle better. But I was reading a cool book on habits and then I was like, Oh, like a lot of this stuff would be super helpful for freestyle or, uh, uh, I'm reading a great, a potentially game changing book right now, but I'm not even ready to talk about it. It's just too big a game changer. Um, but I didn't start reading this book to be a better freestyler, but I think it's going to make me a much better freestyler. So it happens over time. And, I say that just so people aren't like overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, how would I ever start trying to learn all this nonsense or read all these random books that not that many people care that bad or find that interesting. But I think if you dedicate yourself to something long enough, you'll start to pick up on these things intuitively and 
Yeah. But for all I know, everyone listens to this and they do all this stuff is really obvious. We all do it. But I don't know if that's true. I know in the music world, people don't do it very much. And I also know in my own life, I'm constantly disregarding all these useful tips just because, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it the right way. I just want to <laughs> do it the easy way. <laughs> I know I have my habits. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I'm going to go to bed tomorrow. I have a early morning jam with Tanya Nell and Eric Gibbons in my first freestyle park. That's going to be, I think it was like 107 here yesterday. So I'm very curious how hot it's going to be. Not surprisingly, we started at 8 a.m. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. I'll give you one last tangent. Uh, it's kind of funny being at home because you kind of go back into a dynamic of being a child with your parents. And my mom picked me up in her new car. We're driving home. We're in her new car. And she's explaining to me how to work the door handle of the car. And I had to stop her and be like, Mom, I am sitting in this car right now because I managed to work the door handle to get in. But it was just very funny to be like, oh, yeah, like it's very rare for another human being to explain to me the basics of life but i'm with my mom and <laughs> it's funny we don't spend a lot of time we don't get to spend a lot of time together so we're reverting back speaking of learning so uh, i have the opposite been, problem it's always funny to be back home <laughs> every new person i have to really? tell them how to get in and i have to tell them how to get out <laughs> well maybe it's because it's like your car it's not a tesla but it's got a similar door handle but I was like, you realize you're explaining to me how to work a door handle that I had to operate <laughs> in order to be sitting in this seat right now. She's like, okay. But uh, if you ever wonder where my tendency to over-explain things comes from, do you just have to talk to my mom? <laughs> when when I talk with my mom, it's like when you and I talk where I'm just sitting there completely silent and it's my mom <laughs> who's talking. So it's kind of, that's where it comes from. It's all genes. Okay, cool. Well, with that, uh, great talking to you and uh, talk to you all next week.